Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Today, what I'd like to do is just continue from last week, from part four of Footsteps to the Coffin. Uh, if you'll remember the, the context or the, you know, we started in Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter seven, which, you know, it starts off in the lower Galilee with Yeshua resurrecting a young man from the dead, resurrecting him from the coffin uh, for the sake of his mother, who was a widow. And then just Immediately after that, we have the first account of an alabaster woman who's breaking this vial of perfume, and she's washing Yeshua's feet with her tears and with her hair. And, you know, part one, two, three, four, we looked at the symbolism of different things, of the nard, of especially the earthy smell of the nard, um, how it can represent death, the earthiness of the human body, especially the unresurrected human body or the unforgiven human body. We looked at the hair. What does it symbolize? We found some correlations, you know, not not surprisingly in the Song of Songs, which has been our working text for the footsteps of Messiah. We found the king reclining at the table, which apparently is what drew the woman with the alabaster violet perfume into the chamber to wash his feet with her hair, to surrender to him this mountain of sins that had surrounded her. And these are also, you know, wonderfully enlightening things, very practical in application, extremely practical in application. We didn't necessarily, you know, read the Song of Songs the first time and say, oh, there's something I can apply tomorrow. But as we go back and we read it at a more mature level, We can see that it is something that we can apply tomorrow, even today. And it has to do with forgiveness. And we went through that in detail. And in this week's newsletter, uh, which runs, it's running a little bit behind where we are in the live stream, by the way. So we reviewed that in the newsletter this week of the different meanings of a kiss. We went over all that, the different meanings, and of course, interest and credit, a weapon, you know, a right answer, all these things are, are different definitions of a kiss in Hebrew and how all these things could factor in and how important it is to, to help the stranger, the orphan, the widow. And in this case, especially somebody who is, you know, buried under a pile of sin and they want out, they don't want to sin anymore. They want out, but they just don't see a way out. And sometimes sin can do that to us. It can bury us so far down. We just don't think we see a way out and we despair. And in those moments of despair, horrible things can happen. You know, people can take their own lives. They can not just take their own lives. They can take other people out. Uh, your, your mind gets twisted up. Your mind gets bent in weird ways when you despair. And we've probably all known people who reached that that ultimate point of despair. They took their own lives. They didn't see a way out. Uh, They were surrounded by the troubles, like it says in the psalm. They were under a mountain of sin, like it says in the psalm. And there was no help. And and sometimes we try to help. And, you know, they, they don't accept that help, which makes us feel pretty rotten. 
Uh, we always, you know, we have the survivor's guilt. Well, I, I could have tried this. I could have tried that. Why didn't I see this? Why didn't I see that? Well, often, you know, when someone's buried under a mountain of sin, they become very secretive. They don't want you to know everything that's going on in their lives because they're embarrassed. Uh, they feel like they've let you down in some way. And so often, you know, we can't get that hand of rescue in there in time. But what Yeshua is telling us is if you know, somebody is willing to repent, we need to be there for them. We don't need to bury them in an old reputation when they repent, when they come to faith in Yeshua, when they say, I, I, I want to stop sinning. But sometimes when you come to salvation in Yeshua, you don't even know what sin is, really. You just know it's bad stuff. And you spend the rest of your life, as you study the Torah, getting a deeper and deeper and deeper definition of sin, because you understand more and more and more of his word. And so that might be why in the, the parable, that Yeshua told to Simon, the Pharisee, Shimon, the Pharisee, you know, he, he compared her sins to maybe 500 denarii worth, and then the Pharisees to 50 denarii worth. Well, the, the message in, in that story is, you know what, Simon, you might be a Pharisee, you might be learned in the word, you might be able to read it in the original text, you might know the proper applications, but something has gone awry. Even though you know what's there, your process of application, there's been a breakdown and you still have 50 denarii worth of sins. And so that tells us very few of us would know, especially the five first books of the Bible, as, as well as Simon the Pharisee in the first century. How many of us? But yet, someone who knew it inside and out, if he had 50 denarii worth of sins, Imagine those of us who are just learning. We're, we're in the Torah cycles. We're reading the Torah portions. You know, we're, we're doing our best to fulfill Shema Yisrael. We will do and we will hear. And yet, what are we doing? Without even realizing it, sometimes we're still accumulating sins. And so Yeshua spoke to that when he talked to his disciples. Remember at the Passover, as he's, you know, he's washed their feet and he said, basically, you're, you're already clean. You just need to wash your feet and you need to wash one another's feet. What did he mean by that? Well, that goes back to another symbol we've been studying, doesn't it? The feet. Why the feet? Why did she wash his feet? Well, again, so many different meanings, significance uh, to the feet. But Yeshua is saying, yeah, you might be saved. You might have come to believe in me, but you're still living in, in a fallen natural world. And your feet, which is where the human body contacts this earthy earth, you're still going to come into contact with unclean things. So you need to guard your feet. Guard where your feet are going. Your heart should be clean. Um, don't let anything, you know, infect, contaminate your heart. And will we continue to sin sometimes? Yeah, we will. But see, as we learn more and more of his word, and as we fall more and more in love with Yeshua, and the spirit reveals his word to us, then we should sin less and less. Uh, nevertheless, what is the point of judging somebody who has 500 denarii worth of sin when we, thinking how righteous we are in the Torah, because we learned the Torah, Yeshua is saying, hey, you still got 50 denarii worth, sin is sin, right? So, so don't uh, reject the person with 500. Uh, see yourself as in the same boat, both still in need of repentance, and if we'll both repent, then there's no reason not to accept one another. There's no reason to cast a former sinner into a, how would we say it, into not an image, but not to ever let them outlive their reputation 
And, and that's hard to do as human beings. We just want to keep casting people in the roles we knew them as. You know, if, if you know, they were, you know, bad kids growing up and, and all you remember from them in high school is the way they used to act. And then you run into them 20 years later, it's going to be really hard for you to see them as maybe a, a completely different person, all grown up, all mature, uh, straightened up their choices. You're, we always tend to remember the bad stuff. But this is why I say we can apply this tomorrow. If we know of somebody who maybe was caught up in sin, it might even be us. We might be the person with 500 denarii worth and we're having trouble forgiving ourselves. And see, if we have trouble seeing ourselves as anything else, if we have trouble seeing ourselves as a royal priesthood, then it, it might be difficult. You know, we, we might be one of those people. I remember, you know, when I was young, I, I went to churches where it seemed like the same people went up front to get saved every week. I'm like, they're not saved yet. How long does it take? I thought it was just like a decision, but they never felt saved. They didn't know how to forgive themselves that 500 denarii worth of sin. And so we can help guide people. We can accept them as who they are in Messiah now. You know, they are seated with Messiah in the heavenlies. And we can be begin treating them now as though they are children of the King. And that's easy to forget. As we look at one another, we're so used to you know, our friends and our family and so forth. And it's really hard to remember that when you're talking, especially to your, your friends in Messiah, I'm talking to a prince or a princess. I'm talking to a son or a daughter of the king. We don't typically treat one another like we're royalty, but we are royal priesthood. And, and sometimes maybe this can help people like the woman with the alabaster vial to kind of raise her up. Yeshua said, your sins are forgiven you. And I don't think she ever forgot that. And maybe that's something we can say to one another. You know, if Yeshua were standing here right now, your sins are forgiven you. Forgive yourself. He has. Are you better than Yeshua? Do you have permission to hold these sins over your own head when Yeshua doesn't? He says, go your way. Your sins are forgiven you. You're a princess. You're a prince. Encourage one another with that. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, made up. Be sincere. Because this is, this is reality. It doesn't feel like reality, but it is. When the kingdom comes, it will feel more real, but it will never be more real than it is right now. When someone is saved and forgiven by Yeshua, they are a son and a daughter of the king. And it's okay to treat them like that. It's oh, it, you know, it's it's okay to see them in that new role than in the old one with all the stench of death that's attached to it. So let me share my screen with you. I just, I always want you to see something practical, something that can help you bear fruit tomorrow. And, you know, I think that wherever the spirit leads us to study on any given day or in any given week, I don't think it's random at all. And if I'm listening, you know, to what the Holy Spirit is telling me in terms of what I present in teaching. And if you are sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is telling you about the teaching or the word that's coming through the teaching then it's, it's never going to be random. And most likely it is preparing you and me for a situation we might confront very soon, where we might come into contact with someone very soon. And we have an opportunity, that window is open and we can jump right through that window with the word that he's equipped us with. And there might be somebody just coming up in your life who needs to be reminded they are a prince or a princess in the kingdom. And you're not holding their sins against them. And if they're holding their own sins against them, it's time to stop 
If Yeshua has forgiven, then they can forgive themselves because they will never press on to excellence as a prince or a princess if they don't understand who they were created to be in his kingdom. You know, there's there's the kingdom, and then there's inheriting the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom is what Yeshua and the apostles encouraged us to do, not just to, you know, accidentally kind of roll into the kingdom, but instead to prepare ourselves to inherit. And in, in those days, you can tell from Yeshua's parables, when a child was going to inherit the father's estate, then the father went to every effort to have that child educated and trained to inherit that state and to continue that estate running exactly the way the father ran it. They prepare the child to inherit, not just to roll into the kingdom like the prodigal son, but like the older son, you know, and as an older son, you know, maybe, okay, I prepared, prepared, prepared. And, and now we got all these prodigals coming back into the kingdom, but you know what? They may not inherit. They squander their inheritance, but they're still in the kingdom. They're still the father's children. And so then the question falls back on us. Will we rejoice that they're in the kingdom no matter what? Would, wouldn't we rather they be in the kingdom, maybe not inheriting everything, but provided for by the father. And would we do the same thing the father would do? If we have inherited the kingdom, would we also provide for that prodigal brother who comes back, who may have squandered his life? He, he won't be able to go back and retrace his steps in preparing, you know, to inherit the kingdom, but he will be safe. You know, he, he will have returned. He will have done repentance at some point. That can, that can change our lives, but it can definitely change someone else's to know that, you know, if this brother comes back from feeding the pigs, that we won't get up every morning and remind him that he came back from feeding the pigs. Because the parable, I think, is really about the older son. Will you always hold this against your little brother? Or will you simply welcome him and take care of him and make sure that he's provided for in your father's kingdom? So let's review a little bit from last week's lesson. We looked at alabaster, why alabaster vials in both cases, the symbolism there, and the feet. And then we saw that they were related. Uh, again, and you have to consider context. You have to make sure that the context fits that particular significance, because sometimes feet are just feet. Uh, but if you look at it in the context, you might see that there's a significance in terms of a thread, a theme that runs through there. So last week, we saw how the alabaster, which remember formed the pavement of the temple, it formed the lower legs of the king. We saw that in Song of Songs. And of course, feet are factoring into this, of course. So it makes sense that the, the lower legs of the king, his feet would also be alabaster, set on golden pedestals. But what did this represent? The place for the spiritual realm of the kingdom of heaven touches the physical earth on the temple mount, right? Remember, heaven is his throne and the earth is his foot stool, foot stool. So where are his feet resting? Well, because he's spirit, the, the best way we can guess how to understand it is by putting it into the context of our physical feet or a physical footstool. Well, we know he doesn't have physical feet or a physical 
concept of a foot stool because his feet don't really need a stool. (laughs) He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't have a recliner. But we can look at physical things like a throne or a footstool, and it helps us to understand the spiritual realm as much as possible. So heaven is his throne, and where his feet touch the physical earth, the point of contact, but remember, we're talking about spirit touching something physical, spirit touching something physical. So where the those spiritual feet would touch the physical earth would be right there on the temple mount. This is where the two realms connect. Uh, And so remember the the pavement of the temple was alabaster. And so it's this thin veil of alabaster between the spiritual realm where his feet are and the earth the earthy realm just underneath that alabaster pavement. And remember in in both cases with the alabaster vials, the women are bringing nard, an expensive perfume. But we know that by itself, nard is not that pleasant. It has an extremely stinky kind of earthy odor. I've never smelled just the pure nard before, but those who have tell me it smells very earthy. Makes perfect sense. Why are they pouring out the nard? Well, again, nard with that that essence of earthiness, it can represent the earthy part of a human being. Remember, we have a physical body. And until the resurrection, if we were to pass away, even though the, the spirit would go back to Adonai, even though the souls are held in a, in a special place for the righteous uh, beneath the altar, which is actually located in, in the understanding beneath the throne about where his feet are, that it's describing there on the Temple Mount, that that uh, well of souls where they are, they're gathered and collected and, you know, the garden is right there that they're abiding there until the point where, you know, they're saying, how long, O Lord? Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that in, in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord? But they're being held there uh, until the resurrection of the dead. What happens to your body in the meantime? It goes back to the earth. And so what is this woman doing? Not just signifying, I think, the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, which we definitely know Miriam was doing in the second alabaster um, incident. I don't know, we call this an incident. We know that she was anointing his body for burial. But um, the first one, it seems as though this is more at the front end of Yeshua's ministry. So what's going on here? Again, the nard represents the earthy aspect. And I don't know that the the two incidents were that much different in that respect. Because what is she bringing? She's bringing her pile of sins and she's offering. She's touching her hair. Remember the, the, the song says, you know, my sins are more than the, the number of hairs on my head. They're more than I can count. Sin is what kills us. 
you know, it's um, we're dead in trespass and sin. And so she's bringing this trespass and sin and she's offering it to Yeshua using her hair as that symbol of the number of sins. Just imagine, you know, that as she's letting her hair down, she can't even see. She's basically blind as she washes his feet with her hair. But what's happening is what the rabbis say happened with the nard in the temple is that it would it would transform into this pleasing aroma of sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice of humankind, of course, was Yeshua. He was the ultimate sacrifice. So through Yeshua's sacrifice, that earthy part of a human being, the part of us that can die and go back to the earth, that will be resurrected from the dead. Not only will he forgive our sins, even the, the human body can be resurrected from the dead, can be transformed. And it's the same thing with the nard. When you, you add other spices or other perfumes to the nard, that's when it becomes especially wonderful in aroma. And so if, if we mix the blood, because remember in last week's lesson, they talked about how the blood of the lamb was the nard that uh, covered the stench of death in Egypt after nine plagues. Of course, it's full of death. And then they're going to have the death of the firstborn. And they say well, the blood of the lamb was something that transformed that stench. And the same thing in the temple, when the Passover lambs were offered in the temple, all that blood, but it was like the nard. They compare it to the nard, that this aroma of sacrifice is transformative out of that, you know, out of death comes life. And Yeshua is that ultimate sacrifice, right? So that's just a, a little bit of review. So let's go forward. Here's a good example. You say, okay, where else is this in the scripture? Isaiah 6.1, I thought was a great verse. It's one that just about everybody knows. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. All right, so again, we're imagining, okay, we know that Adonai, he's a spirit. He's not a human being. He doesn't have, he's not made of physical matter. He's made of spiritual matter, if there is such a thing. Does spirit have matter? I don't know. But how are we to understand him? How, how can we see what Isaiah saw in the year of King Uzziah's death? Well, he, he sees this vision of Adonai sitting on a throne. He says it's lofty and it's exalted. And this goes back to heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. It says the, the train of his robe, like the hem of his robe, the, you know, the bottom of his robe, it fills the temple. Well, that helps us to understand how earth is his footstool. If his feet, which represent the kingdom, where the kingdom of heaven meets the kingdom on earth, if that's what this represents, and you can see there in the graphic, you know, the alabaster pavement. Now, I don't know exactly where his feet would go because they're not feet like our feet. <laughs> so, I can't wait to find out what a foot really looks like. Um, well, I can't wait. I'm not volunteering. So. 
that helps us though to see if his robe fills the temple, then you can imagine when somebody is seating and they're wearing a robe, where does the hem of the robe touch? It touches around the feet. It surrounds the feet. So again, that's just a, another way we can help imagine his feet. And, you know, if, if you have a copy of the Becky book I wrote called 50,000 Degrees and Cloudy, A Better Resurrection, there's a lot of details in there from the Jewish understanding of the resurrection of the dead and what happens after we die. And so much of that is reflected even in the New Testament, in the in the, the writings of Paul, especially, he writes a lot from Jewish tradition. Makes sense. Uh, a great rabbi of his generation. Um, Yeshua refers to a lot of this. And so, uh, you know, he talks about Abraham's bosom in the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and how the, the, the rich man he his soul is still aware he doesn't have a body remember the body is earthy it will begin to decay but the soul it's in a state of sleep that doesn't mean it's unconscious even when you're asleep your brain is going 90 miles an hour you might even dream the difference is when you're dreaming you can't make your feet and your hands work like you want them to you can't even make your mouth work like you want it to you know, every now and then you might, if you have a nightmare, you might be able to scream. Every now and then you might be able to sleepwalk. But for the most part, your body is unresponsive uh, to what you're dreaming. Um, it's it's like it's just uh, chained. It's like it's wrapped in a cocoon or something. And you you can't get your body to respond to what your mind wants it to do. Well, that's the understanding is that when you sleep at night, you're experiencing one sixtieth of what death is like. That there is a consciousness of the soul, but there's nobody to do anything with those thoughts. If your thought is to walk, you can't walk. If your thought is to do something with your hands, you won't have any hands. If you say, I'm thirsty, bring me a drop of water for my tongue. There's no tongue. There's no mouth. There's no lips. It wouldn't do you any good to have a drink of water. It's just that... You still have appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect separated from a body in which to experience it. For the righteous, what is thought is when those souls are are taken into the garden, uh, they're given a robe. They're given a white robe, which you see that also in the book of Revelation. And they're able to rest there. They're able to rest in peace. And this white robe functions a little bit like a spacesuit. They're in a unique space. And without a body, they couldn't really function there. How do you experience the things that we're told will happen? Such as, you know, Yeshua says many will come from the east, west, north, and south. And they'll they'll sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he told the Sadducees, you don't believe in the resurrection. So you're going to see it, but you won't be able to experience it. Their soul will have a consciousness. They will be able to see across this great gulf to where the righteous are feasting with the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith, but they can't enter into it because they didn't believe in it. They didn't have faith in it. So in this realm with this white robe, it's it's a temporary way to function in the Garden of Eden. 
And this location, the Garden Garden of Eden, is also seen as being located under the throne, under the throne, also under the altar, under the altar. So imagine the Temple Mount. Imagine where the altar is. Understand that the physical altar is representing a heavenly altar. And again, it's a spiritual thing. So we don't know exactly how that altar appears in the spirit realm, but we know that it's reflected in the physical realm by the construction of the physical altar in in the, the temple. So where are they? They're beneath that heavenly altar, which means in the physical realm, if we could compare the two, and it's difficult to do, we really can't, but we're getting close. We can say that they are somewhere between the physical altar below and the spiritual altar above, which is still functional in the book of Revelation. This area is known as Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. Why is it called Abraham's bosom? We don't know exactly, but we know that Abraham is seen as the father of faith of everyone who believes, whether they're native-born Israelite, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. If you've come to faith, remember, it's your faith. Do you believe in Yeshua? Do you believe there will be a resurrection? Do you believe he has forgiven you of your sins? That's apparently the qualification to be able to go into Abraham's bosom and be stored, so to speak, under the heavenly throne, under the heavenly altar, but above the earthly altar. So this realm is still, it's it's kind of between the higher heavens, it's the third heaven. The Garden of Eden is the third heaven. There's more levels of heaven above that. But this is the third. Paul says he saw it and he couldn't even describe it. That's how difficult it is. And that's why it's so difficult for us to try to figure it out. We haven't even seen what Paul saw. We're just having to go on scripture alone. But the souls under the altar are crying out, how long, O Lord, until our blood is avenged on the earth? If you have died in Messiah Yeshua, if you have died for the testimony, of Yeshua and the commandments, then you're one of those righteous souls. And this is where you are housed under the heavenly altar, but above the earthly altar until the resurrection of the dead, at which time you won't need that robe anymore. Your body will be transformed and restored to you. But why Abraham's bosom? If we look at the earthly altar, there was an area at the base of the altar where they poured out the ashes at the base of the altar. And this uh, area around the base of the altar was called in Hebrew, the chik, chik. Uh, If you were trying to transliterate that, you'd write it C-H-E-I-K, chik. Chik is not just the base of the altar. It also means bosom. It's a place of comfort. And so those who have offered Yeshua as the ultimate sacrifice, they can be comforted by those ashes of the altar. They can be brought into the bosom of the altar, to the safe place of the altar, also known as the bosom of Abraham. That's that's the best. Um, I think we can describe it maybe without, you know, literally crossing into that other realm and seeing it, which nobody really wants to volunteer to do at this point. We wait until the appointed time, and then we can experience it ourselves. But that's that's kind of helps us position and helps see why Okay, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling a temple. 
right? So it's basically the, the saints are playing around the feet of the Holy One while they await the resurrection. He, you know, at the top of the throne is in, in a much higher heaven, but his feet represent where the kingdom of heaven touches the natural earth. And so we are just lifted, you know, as we cross over right above that. You say, well, where are those who aren't righteous? You know, how can they see into Abraham's bosom, but yet they can't cross into it? All I can tell you is there is a soul consciousness, and I don't know how it works. And, and maybe that's part of, of the torment is to be able to be conscious of what's going on with the souls of the righteous. They're able to sit down and have a banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know if we're eating special manna or what we're eating, um, but to be conscious of that and to know that you squandered the opportunity to also inherit the kingdom. That would be an especial torture to say, I just, what would we say today? I don't know what the, the rich man in Yeshua's parable would have said to himself. We know he was concerned about his brothers. So there's still the ability to experience an emotion. He wants his brothers to be warned. Of course, Yeshua says, you know what, if they wouldn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to believe one risen from the dead. Um, that's how entrenched we can be in and, and wrong-headed thinking. But again, that that torment it's is part of emotion. You continue to have that emotion because that's what a soul, that's part of what a soul is. And so we definitely, you know, I know a lot of us are concerned about it because we have relatives, frankly, we're just worried about <laughs> whether they're under the altar or you know, somewhere else. We just have to leave that to Yeshua and to the Father to work out. In some of Yeshua's parables, he hinted that maybe there was a, a time of, of discipline until, like, what did he say in the, the one we quoted last week? Until you repay every penny. And which My problem with that is I don't know that we have the ability to pay every penny. But, but maybe there's a point of repentance. I don't know. I don't know the answers to that. There seems to be a difference between being in the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom as well. Is that the difference? I don't know. I, I can't answer those questions. But I think he would want you to be comforted because none of us knows what that loved one said on the deathbed. And it might be that they're a prodigal. It might be that they came home to the father, but they're just not going to inherit a position of authority with Yeshua. They're, they're not going to be capable of administrating the kingdom with Yeshua because they never prepared. There, there's nothing prepared. The, the understanding of the, once you cross over, remember it says your deeds will follow after you. And that has to do with the difference between, I think, being in the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. What if you don't have any deeds? Well, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that, like Yeshua said, there's coming a day when no man can work. The, the work... Uh, you don't work for the reward, but the, re the reward does reflect the work. Just like James taught, you know, faith without works is death. And so the works that you do are like the, the things that you're doing for your resume that you can present to Yeshua and say, Yeshua, this is the work that I did for the kingdom uh, until I crossed over and do with it what you will. You know, if you want me to king out, clean out King Solomon's stables, I will do that happily and understand that that's exactly what I'm qualified to do. But if you want me to do something that's, that has a little bit more responsibility, I'm going to wherever you tell me to go. You know, whatever you think I'm qualified to do. 
And so often, I don't think we have a real good sense of that we are preparing today to serve for a thousand years under King Messiah. It's, it's We're not going to be you know swinging in a hammock for a thousand years. There is still work to be done, but it'll be a restful kind of work. However, we can't add rewards at that time. The reward work will be that time, but you cannot add to the rewards, if that makes sense, which is not really what I want to teach on today. So we'll, we'll move on. Here's a couple of things that help us understand how these two realms meet, spiritual and physical, uh, symbolized by the feet. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. He knows Timothy's young. And he wants to remind him of some things because, you know, in a, even in our communities, typically they're very small. Torah communities are very small. We don't have a, you know, a great economic base like a big church or even a big synagogue. And sometimes it's really hard to take care of your own, which is what you're supposed to do. If you don't take care of your own house, you're worse than an infidel. If you don't take care of your own community next, then what are you? Um we're supposed to take care of one another first, and then um, you can go out into the world and do more. Um, but you wouldn't starve your own children to go feed somebody else's is the idea here. Um, and so Paul is giving Timothy some very practical advice, because as you know, you know, in any community, you're going to have those who are in dire straits. Uh, you have the just regular poor people people who have fallen on hard times. You have the stranger who is moving into the community. He's moving into the covenant community, but he hasn't completely, you know, he's learning. We all have to have a learning period and he's being drawn in, but, you know, not completely in with both feet. And often these people were treated as second-class citizens. Well, to this day, often they are, if they are converting. Uh, it says, uh, you know, the widows, she doesn't have anybody to advocate for her. Of course, Yeshua resurrected the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, which is the, the you know, the ramp up into the alabaster incident. So you, you have people like the orphans, the widows, the strangers. We have to look out for them because they tend not to have the same advantages. But some people just want to get a check. <laughs> and, and we know that very well today. They don't, they've never done any work and they don't intend to do any work. They have fallen into a generational curse of, of welfare. So here's the advice that Paul gives Timothy when resources are scarce. He says, a widow is to be put on the list for support by the local community, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Okay, the couple of things that I think are really important, especially in light of Hebrews 13 too. He says, if you're going to support these widows, of course, that's a worthy thing, uh, but they need to have attained the age of 60, which is really close to our retirement age, isn't it? Um, 
I think the retirement age now is what, 62 to 65 typically, which they're trying to push it back more and more. So they don't have to give you the money back you paid in. But 60 years old, unless, and here's the thing, not only if she's 60, would you take into account whether she was disabled? If there was some other factor, yes, you would. All right. You you would definitely not say, well, she didn't meet all these requirements. This is a, a general pattern. This is a, you know, guidelines. But she needs to have shown hospitality to strangers and to have washed the saints' feet. That's important. Now, do we did she invite in a total stranger to her house to fulfill this? No, she did not. That would be dangerous. Stranger in the sense of a gare. And a gare, remember, it's this person who was born outside the covenant, but this person has been attracted to the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so like Cornelius, they're coming into the community. Uh, maybe they're, you know, giving alms. They're they're helping the poor of the community. They're going to the synagogue in that at that particular time. They're learning the Torah. They're learning the commandments. They're they're moving in that direction, but they're not officially considered part of the community yet, because you can't just you know go to bed one night and wake up the next day and know everything in the Bible. And so they're they're exploring and learning, which we did too. We learned before we made a big change in our lives. And so these are the kinds of strangers, because remember, they were kind of pushed to the back of the synagogue. They weren't really trusted that much. You know, were they informants? Were they here to inform on them to the Romans or to the Greeks? But the stranger who is coming into the community if she has extended hospitality to them, then she is helping connect this potential covenant member or growing covenant member into the community and helping them, you know, to be considered part of the community rather than somebody kind of set to the side. And she washes the saints' feet. What do the feet represent? Again, that's just general hospitality. It just means what it means. But on the other hand, the, the significance of it, just like with Yeshua, that she has welcomed them and she understands that doing this hospitality to the members of the community, uh, whether it's their own community, it might be a visiting apostle like Paul or Peter or whoever, it might be, again, the stranger who's coming into the covenant but she's saying that this is where heaven and earth meet, right here, where heaven and earth meet, right here. This is where the spiritual meets the physical. Washing somebody's feet is a pretty stinky job. It's a pretty dirty job. But that's exactly where the spiritual realm meets the physical. And so in Hebrews 13, too, when we read, do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. All right. Again, are you talking about a total stranger? Well, it could be. It could be a total stranger, like um, you know, with the parable of the the Samaritan. He didn't know this person from anybody. He he didn't, you know, say, Hey, are you righteous? Are you a saint? Are you coming into the covenant? He didn't ask any of those questions. So it could, in some cases. If there's a human life in distress, absolutely show hospitality. You know, I, I've sometimes on the news, you'll see, well, maybe an interstate shut down for a big wreck or a chemical spill. 
and the people of the local community will go out and they will take, you know, bottles of water and snack packs to people uh, stranded there on the interstate for hour after hour, uh, those sorts of things. You know, you're not expected to put yourself in jeopardy to just cruise around looking for a stranger. Um, but sometimes there will be an opportunity right at your doorstep. But like in the case of Abraham, when the three strangers came to his tent to bring him the promise of a son with Sarah, you get the impression that he was able to size them up pretty fast because the hospitality, like he's running, he's literally running to go get the calf, you know, to say, slaughter the calf, you know, get, get the girl ready. He runs to Sarah, like, okay, get some bread ready. Being eager to show hospitality, because sometimes these strangers, he's saying, they have taken on a human form for their job, for their mission. And you might actually be showing hospitality to an angel without knowing it, without realizing it. What does that mean? In the context of 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10, I think it means exactly this, that the feet, you know, washing the feet of the saints, showing hospitality to strangers, this is where the spiritual realm and where the physical realm meet. They meet at the feet, right? This is the kingdom. So let's let's go on with the, the alabaster. The alabaster really, you know, the pavement in the temple showing us this is where the spiritual realm of the feet of Adonai meet the earthly realm of the earth. And we know as we went into the temple, we would see all the priests dressed in linen. They would be dressed in linen garments. Well, not so coincidentally, the same word for linen garments is the one for alabaster, shesh in Hebrew, shesh. And it's uh, shin shin. Hebrew letter sheen with Hebrew letter sheen. So it's spelled the same forward and backward. Sometimes you'll see it as uh, sheesh or shesh with a yod in between. It's still spelled the same forward and backward. You have two Hebrew letter sheens, which have the appearance of fire, the appearance of fire, ish in Hebrew. The, the name can also be used to symbolize the name El Shaddai, the one who provides as a cloven tongue. As you look at the shape of the sheen as a cloven tongue, I suspect this is exactly what the appearance was of the fire in Acts chapter 2. That as the people look and they see the disciples praying, prophesying, preaching in Acts chapter 2, as they saw the cloven tongues of fire, I suspect it had the shape of a Hebrew letter sheen. Because you'll see those on any mezuzah. If you have a mezuzah on your doorpost, most likely it will have a Hebrew letter sheen, but it's the same word, the linen garment of the priests and alabaster. And remember the thighs of the bridegroom are made of alabaster according to the Song of Songs chapter five, verse 15. And they're on pedestals of gold. It says his appearance is of the cedars of Lebanon. Well, we know the cedars of Lebanon can be, depends on context, symbolic of the temple because the bones of the temple were built with the cedars of Lebanon. Right. So as human beings, what are we? Well, if we have on the linen garments of a royal priesthood, because see, you could look at the Levitical priesthood and you could get a, a picture of what the 12 tribes were designated to be. They are not Levitical priests. They are not Kohanim, but they are still priests. They are a nation of priests. They're a royal priesthood. 
because their job is to minister out to the nations of the earth. So as the Levitical priesthood minister to the 12 tribes, so the 12 tribes are to be priests and ministers to the nations of the earth. So either way, there's an idea of wearing the linen garment. If you were to, if you were Jewish, when you die, when you're going to be buried, you're going to be wrapped in linen. There's a kind of a linen bag almost that you're wrapped up in because it's not only a, a garment of purity, it also signifies a death garment when you're about to pass from one realm to the other. One part of you is going below the pavement, it's going below the alabaster into the earth, but another part of you is going into the heavenlies, into the third heaven. So you're going to wear this sheesh or this linen. So there again, as a human being, you're, you see how the alabaster can represent you. So what did the alabaster woman do? She broke herself. She broke herself. She could have just poured out a little and put the top back on and sealed it, but she didn't. They broke these alabaster vials. They said, there is nothing inside of me that I will hold back from you. I want to give it all to you so it can all be resurrected. See, whatever you hold back from Yeshua, I guess is what you don't want to be resurrected. You're not willing to let him transform that and make it alive. But if you will break your entire being, if you will break everything that you have held back, every secret sin, every fear, everything, just break it all open. Don't leave anything behind. All that earthy part of you, he can take that earthy part of you, mix it with his blood, and it becomes a sweet smelling incense. And this is this repentance, once it's mixed together, this repentance goes into the nostrils of Elohim, your creator, as a sweet smelling aroma, as a sacrifice. She gave everything because somehow she knew that Yeshua would give everything. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.